Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, September the 21st, 2023. A couple of days ago, we did an interesting show with my old friend Gary John Bishop. He's a writer, kind of an online therapist, perhaps an online existential therapist for the boomer generation. He has a new book out, Grow Up, Become the Parent Your Kids Deserve. It's all about taking responsibility, becoming oneself. And as I said, he's a rather keen existentialist. He thinks we should all be reading uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and becoming, I guess, existentialists ourselves. It's uh, coincidental then that if uh, if Bishop is what I would call an existential therapist for the boomer generation, today we're talking with uh, a, a psychotherapist, writer, existentialist, also known as the millennial therapist, so a therapist for the other generation, for the kids. It's Sarah Kuberich, and she has a new book out. It's called It's On Me, Take Responsibility for How You Live and Who You Become. And Sarah is joining us from New York City, where she's doing an event tonight. Sarah, Congratulations on the new book. I know it was quite a trauma to write, as, as you acknowledge on Twitter. What exactly, um, I know that the millennial therapist is a term that you've acquired because of your huge following on, um, on, on Instagram. You have 1.6 million followers as the millennial therapist. Uh, you're only following 239 followers. Uh, what exactly is a, a millennial therapist? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. Really excited for our chat. Um, so the handle itself was sort of a spur of a moment. How do I acknowledge who I am? How do I hint at the fact that I'm a, I'm a millennial? I might be connecting to other millennials. I'm living through the same things that other millennials are going through. Um, at the time, I was living in the Middle East. I was traveling a lot. So I was really just trying to self-identify with a handle so people got a better idea of who I was. And then eventually that turned more into millennials as a community sort of uh, coming together on my platform. Is there a generational anxiety, Sarah, a millennial anxiety, maybe compounded by COVID, but perhaps beginning at the beginning or first decade of the 21st century, maybe bound up with social media, a sense of dread, of mm. foreboding, a lack of confidence in the self? Yeah, I, you know, it's difficult to speak about millennials as like, this is the only generation going through this, because I'm pretty sure that every generation feels that way. But because I'm a millennial, I feel like I am more equipped to speak on behalf, although there are all generalizations of understanding that millennials have helped construct a society and now we don't have a blueprint of how to live in it. So social media is a really great example of that. Um, we are all participating. We are kind of the generation of tech and that's great, but we don't have the boundaries, the guidelines, the full understanding of the way it impacts us. And so we're just trying our best. I do think that 
particularly after COVID, that there's been an increase in existential anxiety in terms of answering questions, who am I and why am I here? When our distractions get taken away, and sometimes our distractions are our roles, such as work and, you know, um, chores and, and picking up your kids from school, I think you're realizing, wow, all of that is taken away and I'm left with myself and I'm not sure who the self is. I'm separated from the self. That's a kind of estrangement. Is that the existential dilemma at the heart of your book and your work? Yeah. So I talk about the concept of self-loss uh, and that's a more, I would say, philosophical concept than psychological concept. Uh, but it's just a suffering that I've seen so often in my private practice um, on Instagram that I've personally experienced that I wanted to give vocabulary to individuals to talk about the fact that there is a reality or there is a type of existence that's really painful. And it happens when we're fully estranged from ourselves, when there is no resonance, no... Uh, alliance with who we truly are. And I think it's, you know, some people would identify as waking up one day and going, how did I get here? Like, I have no, this life does not feel like it belongs to me. I don't recognize myself in the choices that I'm currently making or that I have made. And there is this really deep sense of emptiness and isolation um, when we find ourselves in the state of self-loss. How did I get here suggests a sense of self. And is that the paradox at the heart of existential therapy, uh, existential psychology, is on the one hand, we feel estranged from the self. We're not mm -hmm. who we're, we're there's, there's someone else out there who we want to be, who we've lost historically mm. or emotionally, uh, but on the other hand, it requires a sense of self to understand that. So how do those two things go together? We, we must have a pretty good notion of being something to feel mm -hmm. estrangement. Yeah, and I think, you know, there is no neutrality. Um, when we think about the self, there is no neutral self. I think there is an authentic self and an inauthentic self. And I think, you know, that word authenticity has been kind of watered down and misused a lot in uh, in kind of mainstream media but the way i think about authenticity is ownership of self and i think that you're constantly creating a self it is not something that's found it's not something that's given to you it's a constant perpetual creation and so if you are lost that was not passive that was not accidental you participated in that as well and I think when you have created a, a I don't want to say a false sense of self but created an inauthentic sense of self I think that is the self that can recognize the pain of not fully becoming the true self. Sarah do you think and, and I think there are those in my generation perhaps including myself mm -hmm. who um who might think this, do you think that the millennials are in a sense a victim of a therapeutic culture? Mm, great question. I think that millennials have made strides in destigmatizing uh, a lot of mental health realities. I think, however, that because it's been so popularized, 
but people don't have sufficient information at all times. It's been weaponized, it's been misused. And I do think that to an extent, there's a lot of millennials that feel a lot of anxiety of like, I should be doing more, I need to become a better version of myself, I need to, it's almost like taking themselves on as a project. And so as much as I'm so happy to see this mental health movement, sometimes I'm also cautious about what it's doing and how sometimes little information can be more harmful um, and people can misinterpret it and misuse it and it can create a lot of expectations and pressures. Um, And also in the space, you know, everyone can talk about it and sometimes it's really hard to differentiate who's the expert and who um, just has really strong opinions on the topics. One of the other intriguing things I think about uh, our current moment is the generation, the millennial generation is doesn't seem to have the same rebellious quality mm-hmm. as the boomer generation. The boomer generation clearly rebelled against their parents, against the culture of their parents. The mm-hmm. millennial generation seems stuck in the sense of it doesn't even know, and, and I'm obviously speaking very generally here, but it doesn't even mm-hmm. know how to rebel. Millennials dress in the same way as their parents. They sometimes even listen to the same music and read the same books as their parents. Is one mm-hmm. of the issues or problems that that millennials don't know how to rebel? Yeah, and I wonder why um, rebellion would be a positive thing. I'm wondering how you're defining rebellion. Is it just the process of differentiating themselves from the previous generation? Mm. Yeah, and it's funny. I brought this up with somebody else on the show, and they said, "Oh, you're such a you're such a boomer," uh, mm. and it's probably true for me. Rebellion is um, intrinsic to, Mm. if not the self, certainly my generational self, whereas for millennials, it isn't. Yeah, I see what you mean in terms of if you're speaking to like a sense of conformity that millennials seem to feel like they have to embody like... Um, and we're seeing Gen Z, which I feel like are pushing against those norms. But, you know, millennials, you'll see when we first started Instagram, everyone had the same filters and everyone was very manicured. And perhaps they didn't rebel, you know, against their parents in the same sense. And maybe part of that is healthy as well in terms of trying to integrate previous generations and, and things that remind them of their parents and their upbringing into their current sense of self. But I also would push back in terms of millennials not rebelling or not doing something different and the only reason for that is maybe a decade ago or maybe even you know five years ago millennials had a terrible reputation we were the flaky entitled living in our parents basement generation and i think that we were so dismissed by um by our parents by gen x And I think part of that was because we were rebelling. We weren't trying to get the nine to five job. We were not trying to buy that house. We were not all trying to have children or have a dog. And I do think that there was a phase of rebellion that now has almost been forgotten, but that we all got um, flack from. (laughs) Well, flack's a good thing. I I hope Mm -hmm. flack's a good thing. Um, Your book is called It's On Me. Not it's on us. And I wonder whether, again, in your thinking about, um, I wouldn't say your generation, but the generation that you're the expert on as the millennial therapist, that mm. there's this 
contradiction between a sense of the self and a sense of the us, a sense of the community. It seems to be mm -hmm. a generation longing for community. Mm -hmm. And maybe one of the casualties of that is the self itself. Mm -hmm. Well put. I think that when I talk about the self, I also, in my book, discuss the fact that self cannot be um, generated or created in isolation. We are social beings. So yourself is co-created with those around you. And this is why we need to be really careful with who we surround ourselves with and what we consume from you know, media to interactions. And I think what's interesting is, yes, it's on me in terms of how I take ownership of my life, how I choose to live my life. But then I, it's also on me to understand the impact I'm having on those around me. You know, we always think about us and others, but we are someone's others. And we need to take responsibility for that as well. So I don't think that um, this book really does talk about the more greater sense of responsibility. But I think it does start individually. And if you can't take responsibility for your own bedtime, if you can't take responsibility for setting boundaries, you know, while you're dating someone, uh, chances of you trying to take greater responsibility are much slimmer. Tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, Sarah. Mm -hmm. uh, I was struck with the first sentence in your biography. I was born in Yugoslavia and raised in Canada. So you were born in a country that no longer exists. Yeah. Are you in, in an odd way separated uh, and, and you call yourself a digital nomad? You go from place to place. You're in New York at mm -hmm. the moment. You're living after COVID or during COVID in Sydney, Australia. So you probably spend a lot of your life in airports and on, on airplanes. Um, yeah. Is your life itself a kind of an encapsulation of the very uh, alienation that you write about in your work in this separation from the self? Yeah, um, I think it definitely started off that way. So I was born in Bosnia during the war. And then we were refugees in Serbia. Um, then, Where in Bosnia? Vlasenica. Uh, okay. Yeah, we had uh, another Bosnian writer on the show. Uh, oh. So yeah, so go, sorry, go on. No, no, it's okay. Then we moved to Serbia um, and we were there during the NATO bombings, uh, which, you know, is a conflict that I remember quite clearly. And then we immigrated to Canada when I was nine. And so I, I do think that there is a, um, a space of displacement. I think I write it in my book that I was all about self-preservation from a very young age rather than self-exploration or self-expression or self-awareness. It was really self-preservation. And I think that, you know, in my 20s where that's kind of where I dropped the reader in in my first chapter, I realized how lost I was and I wasn't even, I, I had no idea. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I think part of that was definitely because of my, upbringing and and the way that I saw the world as a really scary space that I had to be so vigilant and it wasn't really about me it was about just surviving and in my mid-20s I started to travel so back to that theme it's the first time I started traveling after immigrating to Canada and I did it as a way to escape yes but I also did it as a way to have space the life I created in Canada was not a life that I felt could hold space for me to figure out who I was. And so it was a little bit of both. And I think what started off as escapism, in all honesty, then became 
one of the most profound ways to figure out who I was in terms of when you change cultures, languages, food, when everything around you is profoundly different, the only consistent thing you have is yourself. And I thought that that was a really fun way to get to know myself. And, you know, and then it became a lifestyle. Then I started doing research and I started doing my doctorate in Austria. And then it just kind of evolved into something that I enjoyed. um, And I loved connecting with my friends all over the world. But I think it was such a huge part of me figuring out who I was. Yeah, the Bosnian writer I was mentioning is Alexander Heman, who, of course, came Mm -hmm. to Chicago. And his last book, a novel, is about exile from Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. presenting Sarajevo as a kind of Jerusalem, a place which is lost, and I'm guessing the same is true of Bosnia mm-hmm. broadly for you. Uh, we are speaking with Sarah uh, Kubaric, the millennial therapist, a very popular online therapist. She has over a, a million and a half followers on Instagram, and she has a new book out. It's on me. Accept hard truths, discover yourself, and change your life. I'm not sure it's entirely for millennials, but perhaps it is for a younger audience. We're going to take a short break now, Sarah, and then I want to talk more specifically about the lessons in the book. I want to thank our, our, our supporter, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. We're going to run a short ad for them, and then we'll be back with, um, with Sarah Kuberich, the author of It's On Me. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Sarah Kuberich, the author of It's On Me. Uh, Sarah, the book's just out. Um, and mm-hmm. the subtitle of the book is, is pretty ambitious. Um, Accept hard truths, discover yourself, and change your life. Now, you're mm-hmm. also an online therapist, so uh, I'm guessing you don't want to give away all your secrets. But where do we begin? Because those are big, big challenges, Accept hard truths, discover yourself, and change your life. Where to start here? Yeah, so I remember writing the book and uh, my editor going, great, Sarah, I get the self-loss concept, but can you tell me what the promise is? Because <laughs> as I'm talking, and if anyone knows anything about existentialism, it's not like a perky philosophy. And I think she was just like, but what are you promising your clients? And I said, well, I don't, or readers. And I was like, well, I don't want to promise something I can't give them. And for me, the promise of this book is getting people to look at their existence in a slightly different way, positioning themselves in a slightly different way. And part of that, I think all of that starts with understanding their own truth as in what is the reality that you actually live in and I think one of the hardest moments for me was looking in a mirror and realizing that I hated the person I was seeing that was the reality that I was running away from for a long time I also didn't realize that you know I experienced trauma I was so normalized in my community and my parents that it was not till my you know, 20s, where I was like, oh, I actually lived through something traumatic, and it's impacted me in so many negative ways. And I didn't want to accept that because it felt like defeat to accept that um, 
this horrible thing that has happened has now lingered and what I felt ruined my life. And I felt it was giving, you know, all the conflicts and, and the opposition too much power over me. And so I think, you know, all of it starts with just self-awareness and self-understanding and accepting your reality before you can even fathom changing it, tweaking it, or, or making it something that, that, you know, you own and possess and that it's something that benefits you. Is that reality always, uh, Sarah, unpalatable? Is it always something that we don't really want to hear? No, absolutely. I don't think so. I don't think all of reality is something we don't want to hear. But I would argue that most people have a truth that they're having a really hard time accepting. Tell me more. I mean, you you spend a lot of time uh, yeah. as a therapist, both in and out of your office online. <laughs> well, what does that mean? Is it is it a truth that they're shameful of? That they're... Yeah. Uh, and that only they know? Um, I mean, it can be. Generalizations like this are so difficult. But I think it can be a truth that would mean something has to change generally. Um, I think when you see or it's a truth that you have more power and more responsibility and more choice and more freedom than you think you have. But it's anything I find generally that it's anything that goes no, you can take the next steps. No, it is on you to make these changes. No, this is not the way you should be existing. I think it's anything that that challenges our status quo that we generally resist. And then does that result in us discovering yourself? I guess it, you would call it your truth self, your true self, if you're accepting these hard truths? Um. Not necessarily. I think it matters what you do with these truths. I, I do think that the more information you have about the self, you're more likely to uh, understand who you are and then be more deliberate of constructing the self that you want. Um, I think living within the truth makes that construction a lot more productive. Um, but I think some people can see the truth and still not fully want to create themselves. Cause again, it's not about finding who you are. It's not this preconceived notion of you already exist. All you have to do is look in the right places and you'll find it. That's just part of the equation. That's when you're looking at some hard truths, when you're looking at your past, that's just what has happened to you and what can inform you, but it does not define who you become. That's then up to you. And a lot of horrible things can happen. And, you know, some people can get lost without terrible tragedies happening to them. And it's just because they've compromised their sense of self one too many times. They didn't realize they were compromising themselves. And so, you know, they were acting in ways that were not in alignment with their morals or their values, or they were acting in ways that were disconnected with how they perceive themselves. And then they become, came really disoriented and confused. And so I think, you know, if we look at the self as a construction, it's an ongoing process. It is not something that we do once. And your truth is your best friend. But just because you have the truth doesn't mean you'll choose to do something with it. Are we a rock, though? You suggest, on the one hand, the self is something that comes into being. On the other hand, you talk about discovering our values. Is that having yourself, so to speak, and eating it? Yeah, Where no, do these a... values come from? How do we know that they're quote-unquote ours? Yeah, of course. And I think this is kind of the the key of it all is 
discernment and let's say that you were born into a certain structure or a certain framework or a certain faith, there's nothing that has, it does not mean, for example, that I'm suggesting like Sartre sometimes that, <laughs> that you cannot have a framework um, and still be authentic, that you're surrendering all your freedom to this framework and you're being lazy. And so now you're not being authentic because you follow a framework. But I think where I come in is saying, okay, let's say that you have a set of morals that you're following, be it cultural or religious or just something that you read and, and resonated with you. You need to check in and see if that actually fits for you. Is there a sense of rightness when you do that? How prone are you to live those values? So if you looked at your entire day, just basic activities that you did, can you look at values behind those activities? So an example I like to use is, let's say you're playing video games for four hours. People would be like, well, that was a waste of time. Not to this person. And if you're spending time doing anything, there's a very high likelihood there's a value hidden behind there. So is it self-soothing? Is it connection with other people? And I think our values are something that we live and I think it's something that evolves as well. It's kind of like your values will change over time. The more information you have, the more life, life experience you have, and you will be able to recognize the alignment or the lack of. What about social media, Sarah? A lot of people mm -hmm. see social media as the problem. Mm -hmm. Maybe not so much with the millennial generation, but certainly with uh, the, the, the X's and the Y's and so on and so forth. How does this fit in? Do you see it? I mean, you're obviously on the front lines of this. You are the, the millennial therapist on, on, uh, on Instagram. You've got mm -hmm. 1.6 million followers. So 1.6 million people on social media trust you. Is it the, mm -hmm. the problem or the solution or both? Both. <laughs> I, I, am, I think social media as a concept is, is a scary one. It kind of crippling too, if you really think about it. But I think you need to place responsibility where it's due in terms of if you're a consumer of social media, you need to understand that it's your responsibility to choose what you're consuming, to reflect on it, to take what fits and um, discard what doesn't. And that doesn't mean that if you're a creator, you have no responsibility, you have responsibility to create content to the best of your abilities that you think are going to try to help or inspire or whatever your motivation is. But I think social media in itself is not the problem. I think how we use social media is the problem. And I think a lot of us don't have, you know, boundaries. I think a lot of people are using it as an outlet for their frustration. It's really easy to sit there and comment on, on someone's post, you know, when you're anonymous. And so I think a lot of people are using it for outlets for very unhealthy things instead of dealing with it in a more productive way. And so I think this is why social media is becoming an issue. It's like, we don't have the blueprint that I was kind of talking about, like millennials were the social media generation, but we don't have the blueprint of how to use it in a healthy, constructive way. But I've made some amazing friends through social media. I made some great connections through social media. I'm hoping that I've helped people through social media. And so I, I can't believe the social media itself is the problem. Your, your business and your book is reducing this estrangement from the self. Mm -hmm. uh, reuniting us, if you like. Uh, what's the difference in feeling? You you seem to know both this estrangement and perhaps the reunification. How does it feel different? Mm -hmm. I like the word reunification. I think it's beautiful. And I talk about embodiment. 
And I think to feel embodied is something I hope for everyone. I think it's a sense of rightness, a sense of fullness, and a sense of ownership more than anything. It doesn't mean that there's no mistakes. It doesn't mean that you don't act inauthentically. But it means that you take ownership of your mistakes, of your connections, of your ideas, of your thoughts, of your words. And there is something so incredibly liberating about that. I think, you know, freedom is something that scares us and too much freedom feels overwhelming. But I think when you can take responsibility for how you use your freedom and really lean into the choices to create a sense of self that you want it's a really powerful experience. And I think that there's no solution to life. There are no five easy steps to make sure that you're happy. But I do think that there is a sense of fulfillment that comes from taking ownership for your life. Do you think that your generation is is over preoccupied with the self? No, uh, <laughs> I think that we need to be more self-centered. And when I say that, I don't mean more self-serving or more selfish or more. Yeah. It, it, what it means is that we. Self-centered, you said. Self, self-centered in terms of this, how I define it. <laughs> it's like paying more attention to the self. I do think that a lot of us, especially with social media are externally focused. And then our sense of self is just kind of a manifestation or a consequence of how we're trying to deal with the external world. I think if more of us actually paid attention to how we were feeling, how we want to show up, how we want to support others, how we want to accomplish something and how we want to, you know, be a part of society at large we would experience a, a really massive shift. So I do think that millennials could actually be a li- like in my, for my clients, oftentimes they'd be like, I want you to be more selfish. <laughs> I, I want you to figure out what you want and try to get it. Obviously not in a malicious way. And these are all contextual um, based conversations, but I think it's really fascinating to see how many millennials self betray and how many millennials try so hard to be a part of a community and part of belonging to an extent that actually ends up harming their sense of self. Final question, Sarah. I know you've got to run for an event. Yeah. Um, should we be also, when we think of ourselves, be thinking of alternative narratives, alternative selves? Your self, as you've suggested, was shaped by a war which you had no control over. Mm-hmm. Had there not been that war, you may well be still living, certainly in Bosnia, maybe even in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. When we think of the self, should we be thinking of alternative narratives, imagining, well, that could have been me if it, something else had happened, bit of bad luck, bit of good luck, fortune, things that just occur which you can't control? I guess it, uh, my answer depends on, like, what the person thinks the benefit of something like that is. I think sometimes it's fascinating for me to think that I'd possibly be a very different human being if I stayed in the Balkans. Um, What traits do I think would have developed over time? Which traits do I not think I would be having? But that's a lot of what ifs. And I don't always find the what ifs as helpful in terms of what is, is Hard enough. <laughs> right. Well, but, but the point I think might be to underline the plasticity of the self, the fact that we're all absolutely we're all at the mercy of luck, of good or bad fortune, of stuff that happens that we can't control. Mm. Well said. And absolutely. And I think my favorite question is all of this happened fairly, unfairly, painfully, joyously. What now? And I think you're right. Like it does show how yourself could have been molded in so many different ways. But the 
the cards you've been dealt are the cards you've been dealt. And sometimes you participated in those cards. Sometimes you didn't, you know, the war is a great uh, example of as a child that was not on me. <laughs> but what I do with it now is my responsibility. And then there's other ways that I self betrayed and other ways that I became lost that were a part of my participation. And so now I also get to clean up my own mess. Um, so yeah.